Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Amazing things are happening at Sacred Nine. The company under which we operate just earned non-profit status. In preparation for our March 2024 concert, a major goal is to begin paying the choral singers. Another goal is the newly begun The Jewel Prize for African American Spirituals, named for my dear, dear friend Ebony Jewel Davis. A call for new spirituals arrangements has gone out, and at the March 2024 concert, an unpublished African American composer will be awarded $1,000 and have the work performed. Exciting times! If you would like to donate to these endeavors, please visit sacrednine.com giving where you will find all the information you need from donor tiers to a Zelle QR code to a PayPal button to the name and address needed to send a check. Sacred Nine Project Cora L. Imposter was a concert given on my birthday in 2020, just before the pandemic broke out. I know it's out there, but it's a thought experiment on cancel culture, so buckle up. Please note that minstrel songs will be sung in this episode. As egregious as any minstrel song is, there are not any N-words or the really spurious buffoonery present in so much of minstrelsy. However, there are a couple of offensive words around race, so please listen with caution. One final disclaimer, for sake of time on this podcast episode, not all of the pieces announced in the episode will actually be sung, and the ones that are sung may be truncated. If you visit sacrednine.com slash Cora, you can see the video of the original concert, and you can also read the concert program, which will be referred to a lot in this episode. Minister Martha Oliver, please mark the beginning of our hearing on this day, the 5th of January, 2070, at exactly 3.05 p.m. Good afternoon, delegates. I am Legacy Minister James Apple. Thank you for performing this duty. As you know, one of Henrietta Blair's campaign promises was to institute a Ministry of Virtuousness which examines American artists and the quality of their output and character to determine if their legacy is to be renewed or revoked. For each legacy candidate, the Ministry meets first. When that panel votes against a candidate, a legacy satellite like this one holds a public vote in order to grant the artist, living or dead, the fairest process. That is why we find ourselves here today and why some of you may have already been notified to serve in another upcoming legacy hearing for a songwriter who has just turned 80 and has finally decided to retire, Taylor Swift. This may be the first time many of you have served as delegates, so allow me to initiate you. Please listen to all evidence spoken, sung, or played with an open mind. Whenever I say, the ministry watches, you say, may it find virtue. Let us practice. The ministry watches. May it find virtue. Before the vote, the ministry prepares a script like the one I am reading, and a legacy minister, in this case myself, creates a representative program of the artist's creative endeavors and assembles the performers to bring them to life. The program is then submitted to the ministry, who sanctions the works 
that they want the delegates to hear and redacts the rest as you can see in your agenda. While it will be tempting to let you hear those redacted pieces, my duty is to offer the agenda exactly as it appears in your program. Cora Linden, poet, lyricist, songwriter, and hymnist, was born in Putnam County, New York, on March 24, 1820. She was so beloved that way back in 2020, celebrations sprouted up everywhere to commemorate her 200th birthday. She was well known, met a few presidents in her lifetime, and even addressed Congress. But Ms. Linden operated by her own admission under more than 100 aliases. She was embroiled in controversy. She constantly wore a particular element of disguise, but more on that later. As the afternoon progresses, you will hear remarks from me and evidence from our Ministry of Virtuousness performers. However, this is not a performance, so if you would like to applaud, please do so at the conclusion of the hearing. We first arrive at parlor songs, of which Ms. Lendon wrote many. At a time when there were no radios, record players, or televisions, and in a place far removed from the high-toned songs across the pond, the parlor song was born. In 1823, the American company Chickering & Sons started producing pianos. With levels of instruments available, even middle-class families were able to have a piano in their parlor. Some parlor songwriters were truly talented. Others were hacks who could tap into the formula that exploited a very sentimental place in the American psyche that did not require much aesthetically. Given these circumstances, it may not be fair to judge Ms. Linden on these songs. However, if she was capable of more noble, popular verse, no one was forcing her to squander her efforts on these pieces. One thing is undeniable, she liked cottages and zephyrs. I am happy, I am gay, every cloud has passed away, and the sun is shining bright as bright can be. To my cottage in the glen, I am coming home again, where my darling ones are waiting there for me. Oh, that sweet romantic spot I have never once forgot. There my fancy and my memory fondly cling. Where the whitest lilies grow and the softest zephyrs blow and the robin at the dawn begins to sing. I am happy, I am gay, every cloud has And my heart with joy elate Sees a merry, merry twinkle in their eye Oh, my children and my wife Dearest treasures of my life May you never, ever hear the sad goodbye Now their hands in mine are pressed 
while I clasp them to my breast and I kiss them o'er and o'er with manly pride. Every stormy wave is past, I am safely home at last, and the moments, oh, how pleasantly they glide. I am happy all the day, every cloud has passed away, and the sun is shining bright as bright can be. Now we move from silly to serious. Cora Linden, at the request of her friend G.F. Root, wrote several songs intended for blackface minstrelsy, which, according to Eric Lott, was an established 19th century theatrical practice, principally of the urban north, in which white men caricatured blacks for sport and profit. The minstrel show was born on February 6, 1843, at the Bowery Theatre in New York and became the most important form of American entertainment for the next half century. During the 1860s, at the height of this phenomenon, there were as many as 150 minstrel troops touring the country. The songs and the minstrel shows often contained crude, offensive, and most importantly, spurious dialect that purported to mimic the way enslaved people spoke. As we will see, it was possible to enjoy minstrelsy and still be an abolitionist. Indeed, President Lincoln himself was a consumer, and according to the director of the James Madison Museum, even held blackface performances in the White House. Moreover, according to Irwin Silver, some of the most devoted abolitionists, like Henry Clay Work in his song Kingdom Coming, tried to use minstrelsy to further the cause of abolition. Sometimes, however, songs were unwitting tools for abolition. For example, the offensive trope that a slave would miss the plantation is the theme of the song They've Sold Me Down the River, which you will hear momentarily. Pre-Civil War songs like this drew attention to the plight of slaves. The abolitionist Hutchinson family singers, for example, sang Old Folks at Home with Stephen Foster's lyrics intact. It doesn't seem that minstrelsy was controversial amongst whites at the time. But what about Miss Linden and her composer partner, Mr. Root? In her autobiographies, Miss Linden speaks of her minstrel songs quite matter-of-factly. In one instance, she simply names a few. In another instance, she describes Fare Thee Well, Kitty Dear as a song about, quote, grief of a colored man on the death of his beloved, close quote. There was no apology or insinuation that such songs were a blight on her career. The fact that her name does not appear as lyricist for any of these songs may imply a certain desire to avoid association. However, Polly Carter states that it was not unusual at the time for lyricists' names to be omitted. As for Mr. Root, he had aspirations of being a serious composer who reluctantly dipped his toe into the popularity that Stephen Foster was enjoying. He used the pseudonym G.F. Wurzel for these songs, but on a reading of the literature, it appears that his shame was regarding the low-brow nature of these popular songs and not their association with minstrelsy. Does the fact 
that seemingly all of America saw nothing wrong with minstrelsy exonerate Miss Linden? Well, she didn't write any plantation songs in heavy dialect or songs that depict the slave in broad buffoonery. In fact, Carter quotes a contemporary advertisement that touted Fare Thee Well Kitty Dear as having, quote, all the charms of Negro minstrelsy without any of its objectionable features, close quote. At least there was one person in America who thought it had objectionable features. There were also a few churches who disapproved of minstrelsy, and if these churches disapproved, then why not Ms. Linden, who seemed to have exhibited exemplary character otherwise? Minstrelsy had a huge hand in extending the crude practice of racist minstrelsy into the 20th century. If you look around on the internet, you can find even a young Judy Garland in blackface talking in dialect. The stereotypes begun in slavery and perpetuated through minstrelsy are malevolent ancestors to an attitude that makes tragedies like the Charleston church shooting possible. Ms. Linden tries to speak for an enslaved person who is treated well and about to be sold. Ms. Linden, with one exception, which performer Rabin will sing as master, avoids the offensive dialect. However, who is more monstrous, the callous huckster who depicts slaves clowning around and speaking in a broad and inauthentic dialect, or the kinder songwriter who presumes to channel the emotions of an enslaved person who is being sold and separated from his wife and children? They sold me down the river, and I must part it be from all I love most dearly and all who care for me. My heart is filled with sorrow. There's naught for me but woe. They've sold me down the river and I, alas, must go. Above us who live. 
hearkens to our prayer. An eye that looks upon us, and when our toils are o'er, he'll take us up to heaven to dwell Although it seems a contradiction, our writer of plantation songs wrote many Union rally songs as well. Ms. Linden was wholeheartedly against slavery and as a result joined the anti-slavery Whigs. When the Republican Party formed in order to, in part, slow the spread of slavery and Abraham Lincoln became its nominee in 1860, Ms. Linden became a staunch supporter. She also wrote an anti-Confederacy song called Song to Jeff Davis. The irony that this hearing is being held in a building dedicated to a Confederate soldier is not lost on the ministry. The ministry watches. May it find virtue. Ms. Linden wrote the lyrics to There's a Sound Among the Forest Trees, used during the Civil War. The music was written by William Bradbury, who wrote the tunes to Christian favorites such as Jesus Loves Me, Just As I Am, He Leadeth Me, Sweet Hour of Prayer, and My Hope is Built. There's a sound among the forest trees, away boys, away to the battlefield. Hoorah! Here it thunders from the mountains, no delay boys, we'll gird on the sword and shield. Shall we falter on the threshold of our fame, boys? The light of the morn appears. Hoorah! Quick to duty up an atom once again, boys. Hurrah for the volunteers. They are coming from the north. They are coming from the west, where the mighty river flows. From the pinkest town of Troy, where the pilgrim fathers rest, and the star of freedom rose. There's a song among the forest trees, away, boys, away to the battlefield. Hurrah! Quick to duty of the atom once again, boys, hurrah for a Does her patriotism excuse her for her participation in minstrelsy? The ministry thinks not. Way back in 2019, Kate Smith's famous rendition of God Bless America, as patriotic as mom and apple pie, was banished from New York Yankees and Philadelphia Flyers sporting events after it was discovered that Smith had recorded blackface songs. The ministry watches. May I find her it is obvious that Ms. Linden is more comfortable writing religious verse. She was a person deeply steeped in doctrine. According to Edith Blumhofer, Ms. Linden's understanding of Christianity was, quote, rooted in Puritanism, developed by Methodism, warmed by the Holiness Movement, and nourished by her Congregationalist, Baptist, and Presbyterian associates, close quote. Most of her gravitas comes from her faith, which is why I am saddened that the ministry has redacted much of that from the agenda. We shall end the hearing with these two sacred songs, 
which are our first glimpse of her happy collaboration with Phoebe Knapp, whom Miss Linden met around 'm a raven please stop I just cannot end the hearing like this please performers go back to your places I have been devoted to the ministry for seven years now and I understand and appreciate its goals however I'm afraid that you have been the victim of spin Cora Linden is not whom we have been talking about Cora Linden is only an alias and the alias is not really an alias it's a pseudonym you see, she wrote so many hymns, over 5,000 by her own estimation, that if she did not use many pseudonyms, then volume after volume of 19th century hymnal would appear to contain virtually nothing but her work. The ministry thought that if you were voting for an unfamiliar person, you would have a better chance of voting no, as they did. 
against my own self-interest, I'm going to tell you her real name, and in case I hadn't had the courage to do what I'm doing now, I arranged to have her real name encoded in the agenda. If you look at the list of musical pieces and read only the red letters, you will know her name. Yes, friends, we are talking about the prolific Fanny Crosby. Many of you may not know who she is. However, she is a household name, at least in any evangelical household. I mentioned earlier that she wore a disguise and that she was embroiled in controversy. It wasn't a disguise. She was blind from six weeks old after a botched attempt to heal an eye infection. Therefore, she always wore dark glasses. The only real controversy surrounding her was when her autobiography compiler, Will Carlton, failed to mention Crosby's publisher, who was a rival to Carlton, in the book. Not much to see here, folks. Crosby never expressed any lament about being blind. She thought of it as a blessing. She said she would not have been able to write so many successful hymns if she had the distraction of seeing. She also thought that being blind spared her from seeing many unpleasant things. I would like to restore the redacted pieces in your agenda. First, we will recall Crosby's work in missions, which were responsible for many of her hymns, which we refer to as gospel songs, in the program. William Bradbury, composer of Forest Trees earlier, is responsible for her career in gospel songs. He was her collaborator and publisher from the time of, her, of their meeting until his death four years later. She would often write six or seven hymns a day, more than Bradbury could write tunes for. The music for Is It Nothing to You was written by John R. Sweeney, whom Crosby had met at the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting in 1877. Once at a mission, Crosby asked for any young man who had wandered away from his mother's teaching to come forward. A boy of about 18 came forward and said that he had promised his mother to meet her in heaven, but wouldn't be able to because of the way he had been living. That night, he rededicated his life, and Crosby went home that same night and wrote, Rescue the Perishing, from an idea that W.H. Doan, with whom she began a collaboration in 1867, had given her some days before. Incidentally, she was speaking at the YMCA decades later, at which time she recounted the story of that boy. That same boy happened to be there, now in middle age, and reported that he had been living a healthy life since that first encounter with Crosby. Once Crosby needed $5 and was praying about it. Not long after, someone in her company gifted her with exactly that amount, leading her to write, All the way my Savior leads me. The tune was written by Robert Lowry, whom she met in 1866. He was probably best known for Shall We Gather at the River. Lowry said to Crosby, Multitudes of persons have been aroused to a better life and multitudes more have been comforted in their time of sorrow through the instrumentality of her hymns. Next, we have the plaintive, Pass me not, O gentle Savior, often used as invitational hymn. 
We shall end today's hearing with perhaps Fanny Crosby's greatest hit and most enduring collaboration with Phoebe Knapp, Blessed Assurance. As was often the case, she was supplied with the tune first for this gospel song. When the time comes, we ask you to stand, turn to hymn 369, and sing the hymn along with the performers. When talking about cancel culture, President Barack Obama once said, people who do really good stuff have flaws. Aisha Harris on the podcast Dolly Parton's America talks about when she, after writing a negative piece on Dolly's Dixie Stampede, a kind of medieval times dinner theater with Civil War theme, unwittingly caused Parton's company to completely revamp that establishment banish the word Dixie from the title, along with the plantation glorification from its proceedings. Harris did not vilify pardon. She simply said, even amazing people have blind spots. I am not telling you how to vote. I just wanted you to have a balanced view of Fanny Crosby as I saw it. 
Now, that marks the end of my comments and probably the end of my career as well. Enjoy the remainder of the hearing. Thanks for listening to this odd experience. A couple of further notes. All names like James Apple and Henrietta Blair, as well as Cora Linden, of course, were pseudonyms of Fanny Crosby. The solo singer you hear is myself. The choir is Sacred Nine Singers. Everything said about Fanny Crosby is historically true. Also, this original script was written before the practice of saying enslaved, not slave, had become established. Therefore, a few of them were not corrected at the time of the recording. I like the new practice, as the word enslaved indicates an injustice perpetrated on African Americans, while the word slave entwines that evil practice with their own identities. The parlor song, minstrel song, and rally song you heard were lifted directly from 19th century sheet music, so you heard today exactly what a person of the time would have heard. Now you know why a chorus in a song is called a chorus. That refrain part was originally intended for a choir. This very weird experience will be contextualized in our May 5th episode, where I and my very dear friend, Regina Y.C. Garcia, will address the ubiquitous question, to cancel or not to cancel? With sweet manna, ha, ha, round, 